The class on Christology or the doctrine of Christ or the person and work of Christ is going to be taught by Desmond and myself. And uh, we weren't sure where to get started. And what I came up with this week is I really just decided to um, do a very broad overview of the, of the topic. And essentially what I'm doing, I'm taking a message that I had given uh, when, a few years ago when we were meeting with a group of Muslims. Um, I gave a presentation on Christ, and I uh, just took that message, tweaked it a bit, um, and that's what we're going to start with. And essentially, it is looking at Christ from um, the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, from the beginning of eternity to eternity the beginning of eternity, since, since eternity past to eternity future. Um, so it, it sort of has a bit of an apologetic uh, aspect to it. Um, you'll probably hear some things which are were kind of pertinent to that situation, um, but I think it'll be helpful for us uh, this morning as a beginning to to this class. But let's go ahead and pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for gathering us this morning. We're thankful, Lord, that um, you have called us to be your people, that you have brought us into your church, and that as your people, as your church, we have um, such a wonderful and solid hope in Christ, who is our Savior, who is the foundation of of the church uh, and is sufficient for all of our needs personally and all of the needs of your people collectively. We pray this morning that you will uh, help us to see more the, the, the beauty and wonder of who Christ is and that as we look into your word that it will accomplish all that you intend by your mighty power. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so um, what I did is as I had developed a presentation that I thought would be uh, memorable under those circumstances for the Muslims, I thought about the five pillars of Islam and uh, considered how to best organize uh, what we as Christians hold as the most central and indisputable truths to our faith. And uh, in truth, Jesus Christ is our one foundation. Uh, everything in our faith rests upon Him. As the wonderful hymn begins, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. <clears throat> so, um, in this respect, we don't have five pillars, but only one, Jesus Christ. Our religion is not uh, built on requirements or duties placed upon us, but everything rests upon His strong shoulders alone. Uh, the one who is also the source of our life, our strength, and our eternal hope. Now given how comprehensive is Christ's person and work for Christianity, um, I thought a memorable outline would be uh, to utilize five points, um, five points which seek to encompass in brief scope the vastness of Christ's person and work. Um, from 
uh, eternity past. He is the one who defines our faith. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And as the scripture says, um, <clears throat> and he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. As one book title succinctly puts it, Christianity is Christ. Um, so the five points this morning that we'll cover, we'll cover the personal work of Christ from the beginning to beyond the end of time, and um, obviously we don't have uh, adequate time to cover such a vast subject, but uh, we'll do what we can with it. Um, as Christians, our oldest and our most basic confession is one that is comprehensive of all that I'll attempt to say today, and that confession is Jesus is Lord. <clears throat> so the five points that I want to discuss in relation to this are these. Jesus is the creator God. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. And he is the consummator. That is, he is the one uh, who brings all of God's intended purposes, all of God's eternal purposes uh, to their determined end. So first point then. Uh, is that the Bible declares that Jesus is the eternal God and creator of all things. Um, this point, which is clearly and repeatedly taught in the Bible, is really foundational to the other four because it is only as the eternal God that Christ can fulfill these other roles um, as there is an eternal aspect to each one of them. So we'll begin looking in John 1, 1 to 14, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not was, was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this last verse clearly identifies Jesus as the Word spoken of in the opening verses. He is the Word made flesh, the Son from the Father, the only Son from the Father. And in verse 1, this Word is identified as the eternal God. It says the Word was God. In verse 2, that he was in the beginning. And verse 3 makes the all-encompassing statement that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this scripture clearly teaches that Jesus is the eternal God and the creator of all things. But there are others that make the point even more explicit. For instance, Colossians 1, starting in verse 11, says... May you be strengthened, well I'm going to go ahead and just skip uh, down to verse 15. <clears throat> he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So Paul tells us here that Christ is the image of the invisible God. But what does it mean for Christ to be the image of God? Uh, Scholar F.F. Bruce explains it this way. To say that Christ is the image of God is to say that in him the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed, that in him the invisible has become visible. And Jesus himself had much the same uh, thing to say in John fourteen nine, where it says, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not see me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Uh, But back in Colossians, the phrase in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, is also rephrased just a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And again, we see in 15 and 16 that the Apostle Paul is very careful to delineate the extent of Christ's direct role in the creation of everything where he says for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities all things were created through him and for him now furthermore Paul also emphasizes that as creator of all Christ is also the sustainer of all of his creation In verse 17 he says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Another passage that makes a similar statement says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. All things hold together in him. All the physical laws of the universe operate under his authority and his sovereign decree governs all things. Now, there are many other places we could go uh, to see biblical evidence that Christ is the eternal God and the creator of all things, but I want to take a moment to consider an implication or two of this teaching. And what I want us to consider for a minute is that as the creator and sustainer of his creation, as the eternal word who is God, He is also the supreme and ultimate lawgiver. It is not only the laws of physics that have their source and strength in him, but the moral law by which we're to live as his creatures are, and which we're accountable uh, for, is his law. Uh, This is not just an implication of of these scriptures, but it is also explicitly taught in scripture. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the authoritative interpretation of God's law and commands us 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, our time doesn't allow us to examine this fully, but I want us to note this, that the nature of the law corresponds to the nature of the lawgiver. As God, who is holy, righteous, and just, what he requires of mankind is to reflect that glory and to obey him perfectly from the heart. We are to be holy as he is holy, or to be perfect as he is perfect. And the scriptures declare that he will not leave sin unpunished. The Ten Commandments codify his law, and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demonstrated that obedience to the law was not simply a matter of outward conformity, but of inward purity of heart, declaring that inward lust made one as guilty of sin as did the outward act of adultery, and that to have hatred for another is to have the heart of a murderer. And Jesus summed up the whole law in terms of love in Matthew 22, where he said, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So fulfillment of his law requires complete, unwavering, heartfelt love and obedience continually. This is what the Creator commands and what is due Him from each of us as His creatures. Now the law given to Adam was of this nature. He was to obey God always in all things. His failure to do so brought sin, corruption, death, and condemnation into the world, and all mankind has lived under the oppressive reality and corrupting influence and condemnation of sin as a result. There is no one who escapes it. In fact, the scriptures declare that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that everyone who sins is a slave to sin, and that God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all, and it also says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The failure and sin of Adam remains with us still, <clears throat> along with all of its condemning effects for all of mankind. But at the same time, our obligation to live a holy life before God in perfect obedience to his law also remains. <clears throat> And this is why mankind and each of us individually needs a mediator. We need one who can stand between sinful men and a holy God to whom we're accountable um, and who can then bring reconciliation between us. And this leads us to the next point. Uh, in fact, it leads us to the next three points which really are inseparable. Not only is Christ the eternal God and creator, but he is that Redeemer that we need. He is the only mediator between God and mankind. Now, in his role as mediator, Christ fills three offices in relation to his people. Uh, those three offices, and the next three points are, Christ is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Now, we've already seen that Christ, being God, is the supreme lawgiver, but 
We also saw that Christ, the Word, who is God, became flesh and entered the world of His creation. And He did so to rescue sinful men, to provide redemption and reconciliation. In His incarnation, Jesus Christ came to do what Adam failed to do and to remedy what Adam's failure had wrought. Because of this, the Scriptures refer to Him as the second Adam or as the last Adam. He uh, also came as the true Israelite to perfectly fulfill the covenant that Israel had broken again and again and to fulfill what all of Israel's history had pointed to. Throughout Old Testament history, particularly from Moses onward, God had provided prophets to instruct His people and declare the will of God and He provided priests to intercede on behalf of His people through an elaborate sacrificial system. And He also provided kings to protect and rule and lead the people in the way of righteousness. The Scriptures teach us that all of this was in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, and that it all foreshadowed what was to come in fulfillment uh, at the proper time in Christ. And we see this in Galatians 4, verse 4, where it says, where Paul tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent His spirit, the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The eternal Son of God came to earth as a true man, born of a woman, so that we could become true children of God and heirs of God in Christ. In Philippians 2, Paul describes the incarnation this way. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. So the title by which Jesus is most commonly identified and which is identified here is the title Christ, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. And both have the meaning the anointed one. Uh, In the Old Testament, there were three groups uh, of anointed officials, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And these three offices while separated in the Old Testament, in the New Testament are brought together under one head, Jesus Christ. As the second Adam, He is the head of the new humanity, untainted by sin, and as the only Redeemer and mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus' anointing for the fulfillment of His mediatorial role came at His baptism when the Holy Spirit descended and rested on him and 
a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So, let's then look more specifically at Jesus' role as our prophet. Being the eternal Word who is God, He is the source of all of God's revelation. What each of the prophets had spoken in the past, uh, before His incarnation, came ultimately from Him. But when Jesus as a man entered into His earthly ministry after His baptism, He came in the role of the great prophet who had been foretold by Moses nearly 1,400 years earlier. Moses, the prophet of the Old Covenant, who had led the people to the edge of the Promised Land, himself was forbidden from entering into the land with the rest of the people because of his disobedience. Um, And because he would not be going in with them, he gave instructions to the people at the time as as they neared uh, the time for, for them to enter. And he warned them at that time not to follow the practices of the Canaanite nations in the land which they were going to take, including things like child sacrifice, divination, necromancy, fortune-telling, and other abominations. And then, um, at the conclusion of that, and because as their prophet he would not be going with them, he then said to them in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the days of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now there are several things to note about uh, this prophecy. The first is the obvious fact that another prophet was necessary underscores Moses' own limitations. He could not continue as the prophet of God. He was soon to die and he was not permitted by God to continue with them because of his own disobedience. Secondly, this great prophet would arise from among their brothers. He would be an Israelite. This is stated twice in this text. Thirdly, he will speak all that God commands and they are told that it is to him that you shall listen. And fourth, whoever fails to listen will be judged accordingly. And the Old Testament from this time forward had a long succession of prophets, but each one of them kept pointing to the greater fulfillment in the future, in the person of the Messiah. And the New Testament shows definitively who this prophet is of whom Moses spoke. And we'll look at several scriptures on that. In Acts Three, <clears throat> uh, verse 18 to 24, as Peter proclaimed the gospel of the vicarious death and victorious resurrection of Jesus to the crowds who were there in the midst of the temple, he concluded with this, 
but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. For Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. So here Jesus... I think I've missed the... Jesus um, is clearly identified here and directly identified as that great prophet of God whom Moses had foretold. Additionally, Peter says Moses and the other prophets were talking about these days, the days in which uh, they lived. The time of fulfillment was the time period in which Peter and his audience were living. It was not some time before and it was not some time after but Moses and the prophets proclaimed those days. The fulfillment of Moses' prophecy about the coming prophet is specifically said to be fulfilled in Jesus' day and by Jesus himself. I'll mention uh, several, several other text, texts which make this identification. Um, John 1, 45 tells us, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So here Philip recognizes Jesus as the one Moses spoke about. Also, John 6, 12-14. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. So the multitude recognized Jesus as the one that Moses spoke about. Another great passage uh, is in Luke 24, where the recently resurrected Jesus meets two of his dejected disciples who didn't know that he was resurrected and who didn't recognize him. And Jesus inquired as to what they were talking about in verse 19. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And the chief priests and the rulers had crucified him. And then they lamented, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And in verse 22, he said to them, O foolish ones, I'm sorry, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later after he left them, Verse 32, they said to one another, 
Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scripture? So in this encounter, Jesus responded by demonstrating from the scriptures that while he was indeed a mighty prophet, as they said, um, he was far more than that. He was the prophet spoken of by Moses. He was the Christ, the Messiah, whom all the prophets had foretold and who all the Old Testament had pointed to. He had suffered death for the sins of his people and he had now conquered death and would soon return to the Father and to the glory that he had with him before the world was created, which had been veiled in his incarnation. Additionally, a few weeks earlier on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus' glory was temporarily unveiled, we have the direct testimony of God the Father about Jesus in his role as the consummate prophet. Moses had earlier said about the prophet who was to come, it is to him you shall listen. And when Jesus was transfigured before the eyes of Peter, James, and John, and while he was in the presence of the two greatest Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Moses himself, God the Father confirmed to them all what Moses had said. In Matthew 17, verse 5, Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I I am well pleased. Listen to him. As uh, Moses, as it had been said in Deuteronomy 18, it is to him you shall listen. Moses was now standing as a witness that the one of whom he had so long ago spoken now stood before him with the Father's unqualified declaration of approval and authority. The writer of the book of Hebrews makes another amazing statement right at the opening of the book. In Hebrews 1, verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the past, he says, God spoke through the prophets, but now that Christ has come, in these last days, he has spoken. He has revealed himself and his will through the Son. The difference in these two modes of speaking is very significant. First, in the past, he says, God spoke, and he did so through dreams, visions, angelic messengers, and other ways. But in these last days, he has spoken definitively. There's a finality here. The phrase in these last days does not simply mean lately or recently, but the the Greek expression refers to the end times. The the epoch when the words of the prophets would be fulfilled and when the fulfillment of God's promises of the Messiah and of the kingdom are inaugurated. The force of the expression in these last days is used in Hebrews to characterize the Son as the one through whom God spoke His final and decisive word. Then there's also the obvious distinction between 
the past prophets and now the Son. Um, this indicates a qualitative difference between the modes of revelation. The Son does not merely declare God's Word as the prophets did. As we saw, He is the Word. And here in Hebrews, He said to be the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The Son reveals God in the entirety of His person, in everything He is, everything He says, and everything He does. Not only does Jesus Christ fulfill the office of the prophet, <clears throat> the prophet that Moses foretold, <clears throat> but Jesus is also anointed as the last and living high priest over the house of God. A helpful summary of Christ's role as our priest is found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism where it states, Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Now this twofold function of providing atonement through sacrifice and intercession before God sums up what all the priests of the Old Testament did day after day, year after year and what Christ has done once for all. It is the nature of the office that intercession is effectually made only for those for whom an acceptable sacrifice has been made. These two functions always go together and always apply to the same people. There is no sacrifice without intercession and there is no intercession without sacrifice and without both together there is no forgiveness of sins as we're told in Hebrews 9.22. <clears throat> Under the old covenant system, priests were required to offer unblemished sacrifices and to follow carefully detailed procedures in order for the sacrifices to be acceptable to God. But the system of sacrifice under the Old Testament was inadequate for many reasons. First, the priesthood was administered by sinful men. Secondly, the sacrifices themselves were unable to take away sin. And third, the covenant was weak and inferior as it was just a shadow of what was to come in Christ. So for these reasons and more, the system was temporary and a foreshadowing of the great high priest who would come and would accomplish everlasting atonement for those who would put their trust in him. Now as with Moses, who could not continue in his office, office as prophet at the time, because like all of us, he was subject to death, so there was no priest who ever filled the office who was not himself sinful in need of atonement and subject to death. With the priestly office as with the prophetic office, a distinction is made between the men who filled it in the past and the son who fulfills it now. In Hebrews 7.23 it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that, he should, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people. 
since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath came later than the law and appoints the son who has been made perfect forever. I guess I got ahead of myself on on the slide, or I dropped one out. Jesus, our mediator, perfectly fulfilled the law of God and was thus the perfect sacrifice, holy without blemish or stain from sin. He had no need of any sacrifice offered on his behalf, but was truly the only acceptable sacrifice to take away sin and satisfy divine justice, which will not leave sin unpunished, and thus only he can purify from sin and cleanse the consciences of men. And that he would fulfill both roles, that of the priest and of the substitutionary sacrifice, was likewise foretold in the Old Testament many centuries before his incarnation. In regard to the priesthood, we see here in Psalm 110 verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in regard to a substitutionary sacrifice, we see in Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 12, um, the extensive prophecy speaking of what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would endure and suffer on behalf of his people. We don't have time to read through this. Um, I think most of you are familiar with it, but it tells in great detail um, how Jesus Christ would be a lamb led to the slaughter and, and how he would pay the penalty for the sins of his people and share with him with them um, all of the riches of his inheritance. Um, in many places in the New Testament, this passage is shown to be prophesying <clears throat> Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And Shortly after these events took place in history, um, in Acts 8, the treasurer of Ethiopia was reading this passage out loud, but he was unsure of whom it was speaking, so he asked Philip the evangelist who the prophet was speaking about. Um, And it says um, in Acts 8.35 that beginning with this scripture, that Isaiah passage, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. This, this lengthy prophecy is a prophecy about how and why Jesus Christ would suffer for sin and how he would see the righteous outcome of his sufferings after his resurrection. The passage says that as the substitutionary sacrifice offered for the sins of his people, Jesus Christ bears their sins, makes satisfaction and intercession and provides righteousness for those who trust in him and who likewise will share in his great reward. The writer of the book of Hebrews speaks of Jesus' victory through sacrifice this way in Hebrews 9.26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then in Hebrews 2.14-17, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and deliver all those who through death, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, what's that? Okay. Um, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, let's uh, go ahead and move on to Jesus Christ as the risen reigning king. And again, some Old Testament background is necessary here. While Christ being God has always been the sovereign king and ruler over all that he has made, the first man, Adam, rebelled against his kingship and rule. And from that moment, when sin separated man from God, the covenant, a covenant was made which promised the fallen man and woman that from their descendants would come one who would defeat and crush the enemy Satan who had led them into sin and destruction through his deception. And then later, a more specific promise was made that the promised one would come through the line of Abraham. And later still, Abraham's great-grandson, Judah, was told that from his line would come kings over the people of Israel. And later still, Israel's great king, David, was given the covenant promise that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. There would be an eternal kingdom. Over the following centuries, the later prophets told of how this kingdom would be not only everlasting, but it would also be universal. It would encompass the entire earth and eventually a new heavens and a new earth. Now I only have time to read a few scriptures briefly on this, um, but listen to these Old Testament passages about the establishment of the kingdom and the king. In Isaiah 9, 6-11, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And the throne of David, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this kingdom will be everlasting and it will be ruled from the throne of authority given by God to David's greater son who will reign in perfect righteousness and justice. But this kingdom and salvation will not only be for Israel but for the Gentile nations as well. Isaiah 49.6 says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. So this kingdom will be composed of both Jews and Gentiles from all nations to the ends of the earth. And Micah 5.2 tells us that the king will come out of the town of Bethlehem, this ancient king, um, would be born in Bethlehem, the city where Jesus was born 700 years later. And some passages that show in the New Testament the fulfillment of this scripture 
in Luke 131 when the angel came and uh, spoke to Mary. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you, he, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus who was born of Mary is clearly identified as the great Davidic king that had been prophesied and fulfilled in the Old Testament promises. Jumping from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, we see Jesus on trial before the Roman governor Pilate. And in John 18, 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to my voice. So Jesus says that he is a king but that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is of a quality and nature that is higher than those kingdoms of this fallen world. It's not a political kingdom which is advanced by military power. It's a spiritual kingdom as he reigns in the heart of his people and it is advanced by the power of the gospel and it is spread through the proclamation and sacrificial love of his people. So as such, his kingdom is not a military power or a military threat to those who wield the sword, but it is an existential threat to those who fear the truth and who hate the light. So at his conception, he was declared the king. At the end of his life, he was declared, he declared himself the king, but also after his resurrection and just prior to Jesus' ascension into heaven, he gave his disciples this charge in Matthew 18, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And he came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Jesus Christ, the King, possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And in His name and authority, His disciples declare the gospel to all the earth as He empowers and leads and protects them. Paul declares Christ's exalted status in Philippians 2, 9-11, where he says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christ is presently ruling His kingdom from His heavenly throne and His name and glory are being spread throughout the world 
as more and more are being brought into submission to his lordship. But even still, there is much opposition to his reign, and that opposition will ultimately be brought to an end only at the consummation of that kingdom when all his enemies will be put under his feet. Which brings us to the last point, which I'll try to ever so briefly uh, comment on. That is, Christ is the consummator of all things. Christ came the first time to bear sin and provide redemption. He will come again, but then with wrath and judgment for his enemies and to renew all creation for the blessing of his redeemed people. In Acts 17, Paul told the Greek philosophers at Athens that while in the past God overlooked the time of ignorance, that God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed the day which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So all men are called to believe and submit to the crucified and raised King Jesus because the resurrected and exalted Christ is the one by whom all men will be judged. Uh, Jesus said this of the judgment. The Father judges no one, but He has given judgment to, given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And down further He says, in verse 27, And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And He tells us in 1248, John 1248, the standard of that judgment, where He says, the one who rejects Me and does not receive My words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. <clears throat> so the judge of all men tells us that those who don't accept his word will nevertheless be accountable to it. Uh, the very word they reject will be their judge. And so then here we are back again to his authority as the divine lawgiver. <clears throat> But he will come not only to judge those who reject him and his word, but also to bring salvation for those who are eagerly waiting for him. And very quickly in Hebrews 9.28, it says, So Christ, having once been offered, offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Um, and what will be involved in that final consummation is, is not only um, spiritual salvation, but, but also the redemption of the physical creation. We see in regard to our physical bodies in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables even him even to subject all things to himself. So he will redeem, uh, <clears throat> resurrect and perfect in glory even our lowly decaying bodies. 
And this will be done by the power of the king who brings everything into under his righteous dominion. Um, but it will involve not only our physical bodies, but the entire physical universe as well, as we read in 2 Peter 3, um, how uh, the present earth and heavens will be destroyed. But down in verse 13 it says, But according to his promise we are awaiting a new heavens and a new earth the in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since we are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Don't have time to read Revelation 21, which gives us a fuller picture of what that new heavens and new earth will look like. Um, But uh, just want to conclude with this, that at the consummation, Christ's people will dwell in Christ's presence in a renewed creation, in glorified bodies, and with perfected spirits free from sin, or any of the sadness, sickness, or suffering that comes from sin. And we will worship Him and enjoy Him forever in all that He grants for us to do. This is what the work of Jesus, the consummator, will bring about. I wish we had more time. Sorry we got a late start. Um, But uh, thanks for bearing with us, and uh, we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for our great and worthy Savior. Father, it's amazing to consider who he is and what he has done, and that he has done it on our behalf. Uh, Father, knowing our own sinfulness, our own weaknesses, our own failures to glorify you, We just thank you for the abundant grace that comes to us in Christ. And we pray that you would strengthen us and enable us to live lives that are worthy of that gospel and that can truly bring glory to your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.